Good evening. Welcome into the Lord's house tonight as we worship together. Perhaps you're watching by way of live stream. We welcome you as well. Trust that as God's word is presented, as it is given to us, that he would lead us and that he would guide us and give us what we need for this week ahead. As we come to our God, we are called to worship with the words of Psalm 95. I'd ask you to stand as we hear God's word. The psalmist writes, O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. He is the one who's created us, as we're going to hear tonight, the one before whom we live. Congregation, in whom is your help? Greet you this evening to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, through the working of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's turn in our hymnals to number 138B. With grateful heart, my thanks I bring. We're going to sing those four stanzas of 138, Selection B.
Our psalm selection tonight is Psalm 50. If you turn in your Bibles, follow along there, page 473 in the Bibles before you. Much of the comments that I make tonight come from James Boyce. This psalm was one that I've, I've thought I understood and looked at carefully, and it, it seems to be divided in, into two parts, the Lord speaking to his people and then the Lord speaking to the unbelievers. And yet it didn't quite make sense because there in uh, verse 4, it talks about how he's going to judge his people. He's speaking to his people. What throws us when we read this is verse 16. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes? You have to sit and wrestle with that and say, well, now, wait a, wait a minute. Which is it? Is it his, are, are these his people? Are they the wicked? Well, what Boyce points out in this psalm is that he's talking about how he is, the judgment begins with the house of the Lord, 1 Peter 4, 17. And we see pictures of God coming down at Mount Sinai. We see Exodus 19 mirrored here in, in Psalm 50, where he comes down on the mountain. There's thunder, there's uh, billows of smoke and clouds, and the people were fearful. We hear that same, uh, we see that same picture here in Psalm 50, and that's before his own people. And the people are afraid that they may not go up to the mountain. Well, this is a picture of what is to come. God, in that final judgment on Mount Zion, and he speaks to his people, some who, have, as I've said this morning, are, are falling back into formalism. They are giving sacrifice. They're bringing sacrifice. They do not uh, have a heart for the Lord, but they figure, well, they're doing all the right things, and so everything will be fine. The Lord says in this psalm, I don't need your sacrifices. I want your heart. I want your thanksgiving. So that, by way of formalism, he warns against that. He says, I will judge the, the mere formalist. Paul says that, I, I believe it's to Timothy. He says, they have a, an appearance of godliness, but they lack its power. They, 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 they appear to be religious, but they don't really have relationship. Then he goes on and speaks of the wicked. And what does he say? What, what, who's he referring to? He's referring to the hypocrites, those who take his name on their lips, those who know his word, but then don't live according to it. He says here, they recite my statutes, they take my covenant on their lips, but they hate my discipline, they cast my words behind them. And he warns, he says, if you are one who comes and uh, says, I, I believe all these things, and yet does not understand that God calls us to hate sin and to walk in newness of life, then we have not understood who God is. He's holy. And he calls us as his people to be holy. Grace does not mean you're free to go and sin all that you want. It means uh, God has brought you to himself graciously that you might be made new, delivered from the power of, from the curse of sin and the power of sin. And he even gives commandments here in this psalm. You'll hear the commandment uh, that you uh, uh, shall not steal. We hear that in this commandment. You shall not commit adultery is in here in verse 18. And then verses 19 and 20, you shall not bear false witness. What he's doing in this psalm is he's bringing the law before the people that they would not miss the fact that though he is uh, uh, gracious and though he has made covenant with them, he calls them not to condone sin or to participate in and love those uh, or, or live with alongside of those who love sin. Listen for these things as, as we look at the psalm and, and then remember that God is himself holy. Psalm 50, 
The mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify, and this is interesting, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. There's the prologue of the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord, your God. But he says, I'm going to testify against you. Why? Because you're resting in formalism. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. You're bringing those. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Then he asks the question, which we know the answer to, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? This is what I want, he says. This is what I desire. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, as Jesus put it in John 4. Perform your vow- and perform your vows to the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. And now to the hypocrite, but to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. And here are those commandments we were talking about. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free rein for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You're bearing false witness. You slander. You sit and speak against your brother and slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. And he says, here's your conclusion. You thought I, that I was one like yourself, that I'm just going to be grading on a curve as it were. But now I rebuke you and lay charge before you. And then this heavy warning, mark this then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. And then back again to what he calls us to, the one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. That which is not just formalism, but a true heart of thanksgiving. And then this on, by way of obedience not hypocr- uh, hypocritical living, but, but obedience to the one who orders his way rightly, that will show the salvation of God. God is holy and righteous and good. And he offers a way of salvation, and he calls us then to live uh, for him. And so we want to do that. We want to reflect upon that. Let's reflect upon that even as we sing number 50 on Psalm 50. We're going to be singing stanzas 1 and 2. Four and five, and then eight of number 50, the mighty one, our God. One and two, four and five, and eight.
Let's go to the Lord now in time of prayer. Oh Lord, your concern is for true worship and holiness in your people. It's undeniable through your word, and we often skip these psalms or we don't understand them. And tonight we're reminded again of who you are, that you come in holiness. And we ought to bring sacrifice. We need to bring sacrifice, but it is not merely things that we offer. We plead the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is that sacrifice once for all given for us. Lord, help us to show our love to you, our worship of you in being generous and bringing our first and our best, but not thinking that because we do this, you are pleased with us, or you do not need from us anything. You are not one who depends upon us for your existence, but in this call to bring offering, you remind us that All that we have is yours, that all that we are is from you. As we learn about who we are tonight, as we think about the doctrine of man, help us to listen carefully and humbly, to seek your face and your help to deliver us from sin's enticement, from its allure, and to lead us to be joyful, to be joyful in righteousness, to delight in you and your word, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Lord, Help us to express our trust in you by bringing and giving ourselves to you in all things. But in this, help us to realize that true worship is rooted in a heart that loves you. Help us, Lord, to love your word, to love your law, to live according to your standard, not thinking, well, we can keep nine or we can keep four of the commandments or we can keep six after all. We're not perfect, and so let's do what we can. Well, Lord, we can't keep any of them, and we're not earning favor with you by keeping of the law. For to do so, to earn salvation, we would have to be perfect in every way. But in it, may our thinking be that we, because we belong to you, because we've been redeemed, because we've been brought out of bondage to sin, we now desire to live for you. Lord, our world needs that. It needs faithful witness. It needs a reminder of our need to repent as as those who are made in your image, to repent of our sin, but then also to express that you give forgiveness. Lord, there's time for transformation. There's need for transformation in our lives. And truly, without you, we can do nothing. So we pray that as we think about our lives, that we would also prayerfully commune with you and ask that you would lead us beyond formalism into true searching of our hearts and a true gratitude to you for salvation, that we would not think that because we take your name upon our lips, we are free to go and, and, and sin as much as we want or as freely as we want, because after all, it's all covered by grace. Lord, we pray that the psalm would remind us again that we live life before your face, that we live a life that is empowered by you. Renew us, Lord, in this week ahead with all of the struggles and trials that we already perhaps are fretting or concerned about. Help us to focus upon you tonight, to hear of your help and of your presence 
even as we heard this morning. May this day be beginning of a new week where we are trusting in you and leaning upon you and seeking you for every good thing. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Number 482, the song that we want to sing now before we turn to tonight's sermon, to turn to God's Word, in doubt and temptation, I rest, Lord, in Thee. Our, oftentimes, we, we're, we're doubtful. We, we're concerned about our own living. We're not living as we ought. And in this doubt, in the temptation, we're asking the Lord to deliver us and that we might rest in Him, for He cares for us. We're going to sing those three stanzas, number 482, as we stand to sing.
Please turn to the back of your hymnals to Articles 14, or Article 14 of the Belgic Confession, page 859, as we'll, we'll be, we will be looking at that, Article 14, and, and rather cursory look at Article 15. Then we'll be looking in God's Word to those familiar verses that open the Scripture, Genesis chapter 1. Belgian Confession opens with the doctrine of God. We've looked at the doctrine of God. We've seen the nature and attributes of our God. We've, uh, how we've come to know God. We've looked at the attributes, some of the attributes of Scripture. It's clear, it's authoritative, it's sufficient, it's pointing us to the Lord. The primary emphasis on the Bible being God's clear and authoritative word for us. I'm not going to, we're not going to look at every article of the Belgian Confession, I want to look at and jump ahead to section, the section on the doctrine of man. There are many questions surrounding how we understand man. I'm not going to go deeply into them all, but from what we learn from the Bible and what is summarized here in these articles, we'll have sufficient information to interact, interact with the differing viewpoints out there. Articles 14 and 15 Summarize the Bible's teaching on man's origin and subsequent fall, especially uh, the fall into or the fall into sin. Here again, the source of all truth is the Word of God, and we must recognize that, especially uh, when it says we must recognize that, especially when it says things that we don't like to hear. When we don't like to hear about our sin and our inability in ourselves, and that's in ourselves, and yet that's important for us that so we know that we must turn to the Lord. I'm going to read those articles, 14 and 15, then we'll turn to God's Word, Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Article 14, we believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence, But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received, and by his sin he separated himself from God who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness as the Scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here, John in John 1 verse 5 calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven, as we read in John 3, 27. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, no one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him, John 6, 44. Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God, Romans 8, 7. Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God, 1 
Corinthians 2.14. In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves, by ourselves, but that our ability is from God, 2 Corinthians 3.5. And therefore, what the apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure, Philippians 2.13. There's no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work, as he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing, John 15, verse 5. In Article 15, we believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin has been spread through the whole human race. Romans 5 teaches that. It is a corruption of all nature and inherited depravity, which even infects small infants in their mother's womb and the root which produces in man every sort of sin. It is therefore so vile and enormous in God's sight that it is enough to condemn the human race, and it is not abolished or wholly uprooted even by baptism, seeing that sin constantly boils forth as though from a contaminated spring. Nevertheless, it is not imputed to God's children for their condemnation, but is forgiven by his grace and mercy, not to put them to sleep, but so that the awareness of this corruption might often make believers groan as they long to be set free from the body of this death. Therefore, we reject the error of those who say, the Pelagians, who say that this sin is nothing else than a matter of imitation. We may keep that open as we'll be looking back to those two articles, mostly to Article 14, but a bit to Article 15. Now we'll look to God's Word. We've seen some of the texts already that are behind Articles 14 and 15. Now we want to Focus our attention on what God says in his word in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 26, where we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And moving ahead to Genesis 2 and verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Down to verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought, brought her to the man. And the man said, this is at last, uh, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Well, dear people of God, our world is deeply confused about what it means to be human today. At the center of that confusion is the rejection of God, the Creator, and our origin, which we find in the Scriptures. Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum 
in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Christ. Now, we wouldn't necessarily see that understanding in the world today. We hear people say things like, well, the one who defines the terms wins, and that's the strategy of many today. They're redefining terms and saying, well, this is, this is the way things are. This is the way we understand reality. But what we need to recognize is that truth is unconquerable. It's not that which can be defeated. To try and redefine what it means to be human is impossible, for it's the creature telling the Creator You can't tell me who I am. That's the foolishness of rebellion. We want to know who we are. We must begin with God. Who am I? Where do I come from? Why am I here? These questions can only be answered as we investigate God's creative work. Only he was there to give witness. I got a charge out of a young boy. I was talking to him this week, and he was telling me, It was his birthday this week, and he described how that happened. He said, I was in my mother's stomach on June 9, and on June 10, I wasn't. And I, he said, that was my birthday. I said to him, you remember that? No, my mom told me. We don't have a a working knowledge of creation because we weren't there, and our origin is not something that we came and said, well, this is how I want to see it go. We didn't exist. God was the only one who was there, and he tells us about the beginning, and we must listen to him. It's impossible to to separate the study of the doctrine of God from the doctrine of man. We need to understand who God is, and only then can we understand who we are, because he has made us, and he's made us in his image, in his likeness. Scriptures say we're fearfully and wonderfully made in his image and his likeness, from the dust of the earth, by his hand. We're not products of billions of years of evolution acted upon by chance. The psalmist says we're the crown of God's creation. The Lord crowned man by, uh, with glory and honor, giving him dominion over the works of his hands, Psalm 8. And the confession captures another aspect of Scripture's testimony, and that's this. We're created good, just, and holy, and gives this commentary, commentary that is able by our own will to conform in all things to the will of God. When we read about the image of God in man, we don't read about a form. We read about the fact that it, it relates to who we are uh, in our hearts, in our minds, with the ability to, re, uh, to reason and to, to discern between right and wrong. To be created good and righteous and holy means we were created with a positive holiness. I don't know where I got this quote. Uh, it was from, a, from the last, one of the last times I, I worked through the Belgian Confession, but it says this, Adam was fully capable as prophet to know the, the living God and as priest to dedicate himself in service and praise and as king to have dominion under God, over himself and all creatures. That is what is being summarized here, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. There we see that threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, how that plays out as we are given those directives by God. That's our original glory. But then we see the definitive fall. When Adam 
was in this position of honor, he did not discern or appreciate that position. This is Genesis 3 in summary there in their confession. He willingly sinned, became subject to death and the curse. Adam and Eve thought life could be learned and lived apart from God. And they were led astray by the devil and their sin infects the whole human race. We inherited, we inherit the depravity that came upon them. That's what Article 15 is about. It infects all of us. Sin is the explanation for our sinful desires. We're sinners. Sin's the explanation for the brokenness that we see all around us. When we see things that are out of accord with the way God created, it's not now our place to normalize those things, but to recognize that they're out of bounds or out of line with God's Word, and we are to, to speak to them. And children, this explains why there's so much confusion in the world today. People think they can sin and reject God, and it leads to all kinds of distortion and rebellion. Today, sin is celebrated, but we have to recognize that it doesn't matter how many people are doing a certain act. If it's against God's Word, it's wrong. It isn't morality. It isn't right determined by numbers or by how many people or how loud people speak. It's We determine right and wrong from God's Word, as we heard last week. Today, many people proclaim loudly that we can decide for ourselves what it means to be human. Some say boys can be girls and girls can be boys. Some say we don't have to be either one. Well, this is rebellion against God who has created us male and female. We need to understand that and to understand that there's only freedom to live as God has created us to live as we are obedient to His purpose and design commands. One humbles themselves before God, recognizing that sin creates great confusion and temptation. He promises to give strength, to resist sin, to turn from sin. Say, I can't do it. I can't do it. I have these particular feelings. Yeah, well, we can't do it. We can't do the right without God. That's what we've already read in the confession tonight, and that's what we read in Scripture. We can't do the right apart from God's enablement. I read something by Thomas Sowell this week. Perhaps some of you know that name, but he said this. The Bible tells us that there is only liberty under law, not liberty above law. I think that's a, a very helpful way of thinking about liberty. Today we think liberty is apart from law. Freedom is apart from constraint. He's arguing, I think rightly, and I'll show how in, in a moment from the Scriptures, he says that there's only liberty under law, not liberty above law. Apart from God's law, there's bondage to sin, and we're stuck and we're lost. But in God's law, we find the way of perfect freedom, the way that we're designed to live. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 45, because I've sought your precepts, because I've sought your law, I walk in liberty. I walk in freedom. I walk freely, not enslaved to sin. That's where we find freedom. Freedom is in God. Bondage and frustration, confusion, these all reign in us apart from Him. If we're apart from Him. When Adam and Eve 
listen to the devil, they became subject to death, Romans 5 says. They were dead to the good. They didn't die immediately physically, but morally they died. They were corrupted in every part of their being. We talk about total depravity in our confessions. Sinful in every part. Man lost, listen to Article 14 again, man lost all his excellent gifts which he had received from God and retained none of them. Now, does that mean that humanity has lost the image of God entirely? Well, yes and no, we can answer to the question. Has man lost the image of God? Yes and no. The Reformers organized the Bible's teaching in this way. In the broad sense, we have not lost the image of God. We have the ability to think, to reason, to Uh, to be religious, to exercise choice. The Bible does not teach that humanity no longer makes choices. We make choices every day. We cannot, however, make a choice for the good on our own, for God's glory, without his enablement. We see increasingly in our country an inability to act rightly because God's word is ignored. Where is all this confusion, this irrationality, this craziness coming from? It's, it's turning away from God, turning away from his clear teaching. And then it seems like, well, what, what, what could possibly, where, where were this, won't this end? And, and, and we look and we say, well, no. Man seems to have this insatiable hunger for rebellion against God. It doesn't seem to. He does. And apart from God, he will go to the furthest lengths that he can. Gita Debray then quotes Scripture in, in uh, Article 14. He says, all the light in us is turned to darkness. John 1.5 is being quoted here. The light, that is, Jesus shown in the darkness, but the darkness did not receive it. And here he writes, here John calls men darkness. That is, man cannot perceive good apart from God's working in them. That's how definitive the fall was upon us. We see how man is choosing for anything other than God and is being turned over to that which is unnatural and irrational. There's not rationality in it. There's not anything natural in it. Though we think we can do it because medical means enable us to do these things. But God says... We are slaves to sin unless, or unable to do good unless it's given to us from heaven. That's quoted here in Article 14 as well. Man is nothing but the slave of sin, cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. We reject the idea that man has free will, for man is now enslaved to sin. Now, we retain a knowledge of God. That much is true. It's not completely eradicated. We Retain a knowledge of God, but it's not sufficient to lead us to a saving knowledge of God. Before Adam was fallen, he was able to choose for good. He had a free will in every sense of the word, able to choose the right, to choose the good. But he lost that freedom in the fall, and we with him. And we need God to rescue us from, from, de- from our spiritual death. Listen to how the Belgian Confession quotes passages in speaking of that bondage. It says this, For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? 
We read that in Romans 8, 7. Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God? That's 1 Corinthians 2.14. In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves, but that our ability, whatever ability we have in that good nature is from God? 2 Corinthians 3.5. This is reflected in Canons of Dort, Head of Doctrine 3.4 and Article 4, if you want to look that up later. But man makes decisions. So what do we, what do we make of that, a man making decisions? Well, he's a free and moral creature. He's, he's, we're not determinist or determinists. I don't believe in determinism as though man is simply a puppet and he's being, the strings are being pulled or that he's a robot and he's merely being programmed. Though we are moving that direction with this talk of artificial intelligence and we're going to create someone that is nearly human or just like us, better than us, and we're going to program them. And the whole thing sounds a bit like Genesis in complete chaos as we think we're going to create. And in our image, in what we want these machines to do. We're not determinists. Man is not a robot, but because of man's fall, freedom is determined. Let me explain. He has liberty to choose as he pleases in full agreement with the leanings of his soul. Let me say that again. He has the liberty to choose as he pleases in full agreement with the leanings of his soul. But the question now is what pleases him? What is it that pleases fallen man? Only sin. That which is against God. That's what the scriptures tell us. Dead to God. What do we mean by his freedom then? Well, he's under no constraint or compulsion. God's not making us sin. He's not saying, no, this is the way you're going to go. I'm I'm, I'm forcing you to do this. Man is saying, that's what I want. More than anything. Apart from the Spirit of God at work. Man's not doing anything contrary to his insights or desires. P.Y.D. Young in his commentary on the Belgic says this, Man can still acquire knowledge, recognize certain moral distinctions of good and evil, feel within himself obligations which he ought to fulfill, and can in a measure appreciate the distinction between virtues and vices. There's a certain element to that. We see that. We're not as bad as we possibly could be. That would be radical or absolute depravity. The choices which he makes are always intensely personal and spontaneous and therefore responsible. Man is responsible for the free choices that he makes. Again, when we come to that issue, though, of what Do we choose? Man has an irresistible bias for sin. Cannot love the things of God. He refuses to seek the highest good and delights himself rather with lies and vanities. P.Y. Young states, Though then, what do we say? Left to his own devices, fallen man always chooses for evil, for sin. Sin has so corrupted and perverted the life of man that we say with the Apostle Paul, I'm a slave to sin. Quoted there in the confession, Romans 7, 14. 
Jan van Bruggen then in his commentary says, how does this error of free will continue to exist? Why do we keep talking then about free will? He says this, its longevity is attributed to the very source which created it, the prideful soul of man who refuses to surrender to God's grace. We tell ourselves, no, we're free. We can choose what we want. We're choosing what we believe best. And that's self-deception. We're too proud to surrender to God's grace apart from, again, the work of the Spirit. Now, this is weighty teaching. Biblical, to be sure, but weighty. And, And what we need to remember is God knows the plight of man. He remembers that we are dead. But Romans 5 says something very helpful to us. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sees our plight and provides deliverance from the curse of sin and from the power of sin as he sends his spirit. He's powerful to save and he offers it to all. As we saw this morning, he's not impar- he's impartial. Man, is, man from the beginning was, again, P.Y. DeYoung says in his, he puts this heading in his commentary, he says man was dignified and dependent. We say, well, how can he be dignified if he's dependent on something? Well, but that's That's where we go back to Scripture and we say our dignity was in this, that we had relationship with God and we honored that. We recognized that. We found that to be right and true and to to his glory and for our good. It was only when we rebelled in Adam that that glory was tarnished, disfigured, and was able to obey. He chose... However, to be independent and the image of God was deeply disfigured, not lost entirely, as we've said, but deeply disfigured, and man is unable to do anything good apart from God's work. Just as in the beginning, so now, we are totally dependent upon God. Nothing has changed simply because we've declared it such. I don't need God. I'm going to live free. Well, that is the way to death. It's only in God that we find rescue from sin's punishment and where we can find life. And dependence upon the grace of God is not just for the unregenerate, it's also for the believer. Paul says, I'm not adequate to do any of this apart from God's grace. I, I can't do this. It's all of God. It's all of grace. He tells the Ephesians that, and he says, it's true for me, it's true for me as it is for you. Listen to the end of Article 14. What the Apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. That's our hope. That's our need. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work. As he teaches us when he says, without me, you can do nothing. Paul, the proud Pharisee, came to a place where he said, I am not my own. I do not exist to myself. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What does that mean? Well, I found MacArthur 
to be commenting on that some time ago, five marks of God's work, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. What are works of, uh, that reveal God's work? He gives five. First, God's power to save and God's power to transform. Dissatisfaction with self. He goes on to say this, the person who's pleased with his own goodness will see no need for God's goodness. Isn't that true? Talk to an unbeliever. They have no need of God. Why would they need God? Everything's fine. They're perfectly fine. They have the world. They, 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 they're happy. Oh, there's some things, but everybody deals with issues, but they don't need God's goodness because they're living life now, telling themselves that after death, there's nothing. The person who's pleased with his own goodness will see no need for God's. Thomas Watson, the Puritan, says this. He has most need of righteousness who least wants it. <laughs> he says just the opposite. He has the most need who thinks he has the least need of it. I don't need God's goodness. Oh, that one needs more than anything to hear of his need of God's goodness. To stop being satisfied with in himself. No matter how rich our spiritual experience we can say with Paul, wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of, of death, the spiritual death? Secondly, freedom from dependence on external things of this world or external actions alone. A man who knows the state of his heart, he says, will not settle for external changes. He prays for internal renewal. Nothing less, less will satisfy him. We could go back to Psalm 50 as we heard tonight. God doesn't want us just to change outwardly and have our hearts embittered toward him or, or ignoring him. He wants us to be changed inwardly and that our actions might be a testimony to what's different in, in us. And thirdly, craving for the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 97 the one who knows his need for a new heart will not, be, or will not need to be begged to eat. Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 15, 16, Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The more we see our need of God, the more we delight to devour his word, to want to know what he says, to understand it for ourselves, and to live it. This is good, we say. Eve saw the fruit and said, ah, that's good for food. Jesus said, the word of God alone is good and satisfies fully. Fourthly, pleasantness. When God works, there is a pleasantness of the, towards the things of God. There's not just a, a committed, dogged determinism, okay, I guess I'll do what God wants because I know if I don't, it's going to be a problem for me. I mean, it's going to mean trouble. It's a pleasantness in the things of God. There, there, there's joy in this. And people say, oh, you're dour Calvinists. You just believe in election and you're chosen and you're going to just go to heaven because God elected you. We ought, to dismiss, we ought to disavow them of that and say, no, it's because we, we, we do believe God saves and it's only by his grace and by his mercy, but it, it leads us to be joyful because it's, it's already decided God is held, holds on to us and we are secure and we want to live for his glory and we want others to know that in him there is life and there is joy. 
pleasantness in the things of God. One who knows the sinfulness of his own heart will welcome whatever God will do in him, knowing that God works in all circumstances. Even the bitter becomes sweet, Proverbs 27, because we know it is of the Lord and it is for the good of those who love him. Then fifthly, unconditionality. A fifth mark that MacArthur notes, unconditionality. A genuine awareness of need is accompanied by a willingness to obey God's commands without giving conditions, saying, well, I'll do this if you do that. No, it's a, it's a, it's a willingness to say, Lord, what you, what you command is good. I'll do that. It's going to maybe cost me something. In fact, increasingly, we see how that comes, even in this land. It's going to cost us something to stand for the truth. Think about Daniel. What did he do? He didn't say, well, Lord, I'll, I'll do this if you keep my position. Make sure I remain the, 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 the head honcho there in, in Babylon. He didn't make a wager with God. He went and did the same thing that he had done before, even though there was a command against his worship of the one true God. What do we do? Say, well, Lord, I'll do that if, you, if, you, if my job is secure. I'll do that if, if I don't lose you know, this, this customer base, or I'll, I'll do this if I, if I can grow my uh, influence in my industry. No, we'll, we'll desire to do what God calls us to do because we recognize that no matter what faithfulness leads us into, no matter what trials we go through, He will be glorified in us as we are faithful to Him. And how does that happen? Well, Article 14 finishes with this and says that God works according to his good pleasure. Right? He works according to his good pleasure to will and to do in us. He works on us in this way. He's to receive all the glory for any change in us. That's what the Scripture tells us. tells us that we exist for his glory. In one sense, we think, well, we've moved from theology proper in the Belgic Confession, as we've just looked at that not so many weeks ago, to anthropology, but not really, because as we consider these other loci, these other parts of Scripture's teaching, it all flows forth and all points us back to God. It's Godward. It's Godward-focused. That's life. That's our focus. We need to hear from Him. The world needs to hear from him to turn from self-confidence and the inevitable death that follows self-confidence to humble faith in him where there is certainty of eternal life. And God says, there is your call. Live in such a way that they ask you to give a reason for the hope that you have. There's your call. Live in such a way that you reveal your confidence is in God and God alone. There's your call. Live in such a way that God is preeminent in your life in all of your moments of every day. Well, let's pray that God helps us in that. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we hear of our original glory and of the definitive fall, We are so thankful that there is that other point that you are powerful to save. You know our plight and you have power to deliver. And 
So we can look to you and be assured that that glory which was ours, which sin has tarnished, as you speak in your word, has now been paid for and that there is a coming glory and we will receive the reward which Christ has won for us as we trust in him. As we move toward that coming glory, may we walk steadfastly, delighting in your word, finding your word to be pleasant, to be sweet. And all of the circumstances of our lives, though we don't invite hardship upon us, may we have the right perspective, knowing that in these things you are shaping us into the people that you would have us to be that you would be glorified in our lives. May that be true for us in this week, the conversations that we have and the stress points that we will inevitably face, the difficulties that come guide us, lead us, and continue to transform us, we pray, as we open your word and are renewed in our minds and in our living. Hear us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Number 439. God says that we can come to him. He has power to save. Come, ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come, Ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall, if you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. And then this commitment, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will save me from my sin. By the riches of his merit, there is joy and life in him. Let's stand to sing these five stanzas, number 439.
Let's pray for the evening offering. Father in heaven, we thank you for the instruction that you give from your word, that ever-living word. We pray that it would direct us out of every age, from the youngest to the oldest, even through the work of Ileana Christian High School, we pray that you would be honored and glorified and that curriculum and, and through the teachers. We pray, O oh Lord, for growth in numbers and in spiritual strength. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would hear us as we give our offerings. Hear these prayers for Jesus' sake. Amen. stand and we're going to confess our faith using the words of the Apostles' Creed, reminding us that God is the one who has created us, the one who has provided redemption for us, the one who sanctifies us, and the one who has set before us the hope of that life everlasting with Him. Let us say together these words, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church 
the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. People of God, hear these words. To him who is able to keep you from falling, to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. May the Lord direct your hearts into God's love and Christ's perseverance. Amen.